Good morning. Happy Father's Day, dads. I uh, always look forward to Father's Day. You know, it's the one day out of the entire year where um, your kids may thank you for something. Um, so, well, I suppose maybe on my birthday too, right? You know, but anyway, it's, it's always a special day. And that last song that we just sung uh, is especially meaningful. It's one of my favorite hymns, and I love the line in there, especially today. Um, Thou my true father, and I thy true son. Let me just think about that for a moment. That the God of the universe has called us to himself, called us into his family, and he is our true father, and we are his true sons and daughters. That's an amazing thing to think about. And so um, I'm excited uh, that we are continuing in our series in the book of Colossians. Last week, if you were here, or even if you weren't, we began a new sermon series in the book of Colossians that I'm really excited about. If you weren't here last week, weren't watching online, I would encourage you to go back, go to our Facebook page, um, watch the service from last week, or go online to our website, listen to the message there, because I shared a lot of background information stuff that will help us make sense of this book as we journey through it over the next couple of months. And one of the things that I mentioned last week, just kind of um, in short, is the purpose and the occasion and the background of the book. Paul wrote this tiny little letter to the church at Colossae, a church that he had never visited, and he encouraged them to press on to maturity in Christ. But he also wrote to refute some strange teaching that was going on within the church. It was a hodgepodge of false teaching, which all boiled down to this. Jesus Christ is not enough. We need something in addition to Christ, in addition to what he has done for us. And what Paul does in the book of Colossians, mainly in the first two chapters, is, is that he demonstrates the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ in all things. He portrays Jesus as being preeminent over all creation, and he is Lord over all human rulers and cosmic powers. And in this book, Paul makes a strong argument that we are not saved by our good works. We're not saved by self-denial or harsh treatment of the body. We're not saved through legalism and observing certain rules and regulations. And we're certainly not saved by gaining some special knowledge that only a few uh, entitled people have at their disposal. And, and if you, you know, follow them and join the club, you too can have this special knowledge. We are not made more like Christ by observing holy days, not eating certain foods, or following certain rituals. In fact, Paul goes on to say, we've been set free from that. We've been set free from man-made religion and superstition, and so the book of Colossians is extremely relevant for us today 
too many of us, too many people who sit in churches, buildings, we are the church, but sit in a place like this every Sunday who believe that Jesus is not enough. And they may not even be aware of it. They've bought the lie that they need something in addition to Christ. Now, last week, I said that Jesus plus something else is a destructive heresy, but I really liked what Ryan said at the end of the service a lot better. Um, He said, Jesus plus anything ruins everything. I love that. I I think, Ryan, I'm going to have you kind of redo my sermons for now on, so. Um, But that's great. Jesus plus anything ruins everything. So Paul's argument in the book of Colossians is quite simple. Jesus is enough. We are complete in Christ. So last week, when we looked at verses 1 through 8, we talked about the centrality, centrality and the power of the gospel in the church of Colossae. I thought it was kind of funny. I went back this past week, and I was listening to, to the message, and I noted that when I was talking about Ephesus and Colossae and Hierapolis and uh, Laodicea, I also mentioned that biblical city of Lithopolis. Um, if, if you guys were there, you heard that, right? I thought that was pretty cool. It, Lithopolis, by the way, means stone city. And so, uh, very cool that we're here in Lithopolis looking at these cities. But in many ways, the church in Colossae was a model church for us. It wasn't perfect, but they did a lot of things right. Now, the thing to note is that no matter how healthy a church is, every church, every local church is just one generation away from extinction. You can't rest on your laurels. No matter how healthy you are today, that's not a guarantee that you're going to be that way tomorrow. We have to protect the life of the church. We have to protect the doctrine that has been handed down to us from the Lord Jesus and his apostles and those faithful brethren throughout the centuries. Paul writes to refute this false teaching and to encourage them to live lives worthy of the Lord. But he does something else too, something that we might overlook as we dig into this book, as we look at the the words on the page and the things that Paul says he does something extremely important that we need to learn to do better ourselves. And that is, he prays for them. He prays for them. And it's just not a, just not a cursorial prayer. He prays deeply and passionately and biblically I would say that he prays a gospel-centered prayer for them. And we, too, need to learn how to pray gospel-centered prayers for ourselves, for one another, for our church, and for the church throughout the world. And we need to do that if we are to live a life, walk in a manner that is worthy of the Lord. Let me pray for you right now. Father God, Lord, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for this opportunity we have 
to open your word, to look at it, and to allow you to speak to us this morning. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would be our teacher and our guide, that you would encourage our hearts, that you would bring conviction where conviction is needed. And Lord, that you would do such a deep work in us that we will leave this place changed, different than the way that we came in, and with a renewed passion to seek your face in prayer and to pray as your servant Paul prayed. Lord, give us a desire to meet with you in prayer and to allow you to do what only you can do in our hearts and our lives. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. It has been said that prayer is both the thermometer and the thermostat of the local church. For the spiritual temperature either goes up or down depending on how God's people pray. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. Most Christians, I think, would acknowledge the importance of prayer. I think most Christians would say that they pray and that we ought to pray for one another and for the church as a whole. But I I always have questions surrounding prayer, especially in my own life, such as like, how often do I pray? How often do we pray? What exactly is the content of our prayers? Because that matters too. What are we praying for when we pray? Well, this morning, it's my hope to turn up the heat a little bit as we look at how the Apostle Paul prayed for the Colossian church because I think in it, we have a model for ourselves of how we ought to pray. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying... You know, we, we, the, you know, it's like the Lord's Prayer, you know, that we pray the Lord's Prayer. That was a model for us. It, it gave us an idea of how to pray, and I think that's what Paul's doing here. But I, I, I've got to be honest, this would make a wonderful prayer to incorporate into our lives. If we just prayed along the lines of what we see here in verses 9 through 14, our lives would be transformed. So it is my hope that as we look at this passage this morning, it will help us evaluate our own prayer life and elevate it as well. So in verses 9 through 14 of chapter 1, what you see in the English is one very long, uninterrupted sentence in the Greek. It's, this is a long sentence And even in the English, it just feels like it builds and it builds. It's like Paul is just heaping phrase upon phrase because words really don't do it justice. So Paul shares with the Colossians a gospel-centered prayer of intercession for them. So if you have your Bibles, you can follow along with me. If not, it will be up on the screen, starting there in verse 9. Paul writes... And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, 
so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. I'm gonna stop there for a moment, interrupt Paul's train of thought and draw your attention to those very first words, and so from the day we heard. From the day that we heard. Heard what? Well, heard the good report about this particular church, of their reception of the grace of God in truth, of their faith in Christ and their love for all the saints. Ever since Paul heard of that, he has not ceased to pray for them. Now, it doesn't mean he was praying every minute of every day for them, but they were continually on his mind and in his heart, and he prayed constantly for them. We have not ceased to pray for you. Have you ever wondered how many people who say that they'll pray for you actually do? I've wondered that because I've been on the other side of it where I've promised to do it and then I've forgotten. I think it's a very natural thing for us to say, hey, I'll pray for you, and then we get sidetracked and we never get around to it. Or maybe if we do, it might be a week or two after the fact. I think it's real easy for us to do that, and that's one of the reasons why I have gotten in the habit personally of praying on the spot for people when they ask for prayer, uh, whether it's in person or on the phone. Um, I, I, I like to ask, can I pray for you right now? Can I, can I do that right now? I don't trust myself to do it later. Now, I've gotten better at continuing to, to pray for people, but, but I've often wondered that. But even when we do make good on our promise, to pray for people, do we persist in it? And what is the content of our prayers? What are we praying for? Do we pray for a week? Do we pray for a month? Do we pray for a few months and then stop? I know we have shared with you in the past um, that when we do our prayer and communion service the last Sunday in December, and everybody fills out those prayer cards, that the staff, every Wednesday, prays for those requests. 52 weeks. Out of 52 weeks, we are praying for you according to the, the requests that you've made. Now, what we don't know is how God has answered a lot of those prayers, but that's okay. God knows. We just want to be sure that we lift you up in prayer. But Paul here, in saying, we have not ceased to pray for you, what, what we see is that Paul was persistent in prayer. He understood the power of prayer and the need for prayer. Therefore, he was faithful in prayer. Maybe one of the reasons why we're not as faithful in prayer is, is that we don't see the need for it. Or, or we, we don't see that there's power in prayer. And I think that 
Paul continually lifted up the Colossians, you have to understand, Paul just praised them. He just said, I've heard of your faith in Christ, your love for all the saints. You guys are doing good. But then he says, but I, I, I never cease to pray for you. And it almost seems like, well, why? I mean, they're doing pretty good. Why pray for them? And I, and I think the reason is because he knew something that many of us don't. And that is that we need prayer when things are going well as much, if not more, than when things don't. You see, it is so easy for us to slip into prayerlessness when things are going well. We don't sense any great need for God, so we don't pray. We, we, we pray when we're sick, when someone we love gets cancer, when there's an accident, when someone loses a job, when, you know, just all sorts of things like that. And, and when things are going really well, I mean, have you ever sat in a meeting like that? You know, you know who, who has a prayer request? And nothing, no hands, nothing. It's like, got nothing to pray for. See, that's not Paul's attitude. That's not his mindset. He acknowledges what God has done in the Colossian church, but he also sees great need for prayer for the Colossians. We are always in need of prayer. Paul knew that the Colossians couldn't afford to kick back and relax no matter how well they've done up till now, they needed to be fortified by prayer and prepared for the battle that lay ahead. Notice the content of Paul's prayer. He prays that they might be filled with the knowledge of his will. Paul is focused on their walk with Christ. His prayer is both purposeful and practical. And in stark contrast to many of the prayers that we hear or even say today, Paul here does not focus on their physical health. He doesn't focus on their material needs. And by the way, it's okay to pray for those things. Don't misunderstand me. We ought to do that, but our souls are far more important than our bodies. You know, one day God's going to resurrect this thing. He's going to put it all back together again. The ultimate healing we, we, we receive is when we step into glory. But Paul here is more interested in Christ being formed in them and their being equipped to live for Christ more than anything else. That's the focus of his prayer. It is really troubling to me to be in Christian circles where when you come to the Lord in prayer, that God's people don't pray. It's, it's as if they don't know how to pray, which is sad because we listen to sermons, we attend Bible studies, we memorize scripture, we journal, we do all sorts of things, but it seems like God's people don't know how to pray at least not like what we see here in Colossians. Perhaps we need to do what Jesus' disciples did. Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us how to pray. 
We want to know you. We want to meet with you. We, we want to converse with you. Notice that Paul is not just praying for the Colossians, but for us as well. You say, well, how do you know that, Paul? Well, remember, this is a circulating letter. This letter was meant to be read in Colossae, and then it was to be read in other churches. And the letter that was coming from Laodicea was to be read here in Colossae. So what Paul is saying is is that this is God's will for every Christian in every church. This is how we ought to pray for each other. Paul is sharing his heart here, and, and, and this is extremely convicting. Paul never met the Colossian church. He never met the believers in Colossae. Yet, he prays constantly for them. You see why it's convicting? It's because we see each other every week. Some of us, multiple times during the week. How much more should we be in prayer for one another? How much more should we pray for people who we see every Sunday or every Tuesday or every Wednesday, every Thursday, whenever we gather together? We know each other. Hopefully we love each other and we have reason to pray for one another. And and the fact that Paul prays the way that he does for a group of people that he has never met is extremely convicting. Well, let's look at Paul's petition a little bit closer. Verse 9. He prays that they may be filled with the knowledge of his will. Now, I'm going to say something that some of you may not believe, but God wants you to know his will. He is not capricious. He doesn't dangle it out there for you to kind of get a glimpse at from a distance and then as soon as you get close enough to it, he yanks it away. God wants you to know his will and Paul prays for his readers specifically to be filled with the knowledge of his will. Paul isn't praying for something that he doesn't believe God is going to do, isn't going to do. And I know some people believe that understanding God's will is so hard, but I think there's a reason for that. That's because we often look for God's will in things that the Bible never addresses. Scripture does not tell us who to marry, where to live, or what to do for a living. Now, there are principles in Scripture that we ought to follow that will help us discern what we ought to do but it doesn't speak to many of these things. God is more interested in our being than in our doing. In our culture, especially, doing is the be-all, end-all. I mean, you get into conversation, you know, with somebody, especially guys, in, in almost always within the first minute or so, so what do you do? What do you do for a living? 
It's, it's as if our identity is tied into what we do. And we carry that into the Christian life oftentimes. God is interested in our obedience to his commands and conforming us to the image of his son more than anything else. Listen to just a few of these verses that speak about God's will. In 1 Thessalonians 4, for this is the will of God. You ready for it? Your sanctification. Your sanctification. Your holiness. He goes on to say a lot more, but I'm not going to read it this morning. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 25. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. 1 Thessalonians 5. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do you see how simple it is? We're running around all over the place asking God for his will in this, 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 and this. And at the same time, we ignore everything that he says in the scripture that clearly says this is God's will for you. It's as if we want to create our own religion. God's will is for us to be holy, to do good, to rejoice always, and to always pray while giving thanks in everything. That's just part of it. There's a whole heck of a lot more in Scripture. But notice that Paul goes on to say that he wants them to know God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. He doesn't want them to just have head knowledge. You know, to, yeah, I know what God requires of me. I know what God wants from me. I know his will up here. He wants them to have an experiential knowledge of God. And wisdom is the practical application of knowledge. We need wisdom to know how to apply that which we know. And he wants them to do this in every area of their lives. So the question, the big question is, why? Why is Paul praying this prayer? Why does he want them to be filled with the knowledge of God in all spiritual wisdom and understanding? Well, the answer is in verse 10. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, Paul writes, Therefore, as a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And then one chapter over, he says, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Now this is huge. We do not live to please ourselves. And we do not live to please others. 
We live with one purpose, and that is to please God. That should be our aim in life, to please God. And we need to find out what it is that pleases God. And the good news is he tells us. So really, it comes down to just doing it, obeying him. Look again at at verse 10. Notice the colon after fully pleasing to him. This indicates that something is following what he has just said. And what follows here are four present participles that function both as a verb and an adjective. They actually tell us how to please the Lord. They describe what's happening in the present, but without view to it ever being completed. Meaning, this is ongoing, continual action. So keep that in mind as we look at these verbs, these participles here. The first one, the first way in which we walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, pleasing the Lord, is bearing fruit in every good work. There are far too many Christians today, or I should say professing Christians, that think they are saved because they believe a certain set of truths. They acknowledge certain truth in Scripture up here. Well, the Bible tells us we're not saved with intellectual faith. James says, you believe there's one God? (laughs) Great, the demons believe that and they tremble. The demons believe who Jesus is, but they're not saved. So congratulations if that's the kind of faith you have. You have the faith of demons. That is not going to get anybody into heaven Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? And do many mighty works in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Can you imagine what that day would be like, will be like for these people who thought their entire life that they belonged to Jesus And part of the proof for them was, look at all the things we did for you, God. And Jesus is going to look to them and say to them, I never knew you. I never had a a personal relationship with you. You knew about me. You knew what was required of you, but you didn't know me. You see, it's not enough to assent to the truth of the gospel. It must take root in our heart. In good soil, the seed grows, it sprouts up, and it produces a bumper crop. It produces fruit. 
A person with genuine faith, by definition, is faithful. You can't separate faith from faithfulness. You can't separate fruit from fruitfulness. Jesus says, you will know them by their fruits. In Matthew 3, he says, every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And in John, he says, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So bearing fruit in every good work is one of the ways in which we walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. The second thing he mentions here is increasing in the knowledge of God. Increasing in the knowledge of God. You want to please God? Then get to know him. He delights in that. God is pleased with us when we strive to know him better. And we need to know God if we are to love him. And the more we know him, the more we will love him. You know, I think I may have mentioned this not too long ago, but I was not content with the knowledge that I had of my wife when I married her. And I'm not content now. I am continually discovering new things about her that I love. And it makes me love her more. And the same is true with God. You will never exhaust God. There is always something new about him, a, a facet that we didn't see before, a characteristic, an attribute of God. We will never, never uncover all the wonderful things about God in this life. It will take an eternity, and even then, I don't think we're going to be able to do it. So you want to please God? Then grow in your knowledge and understanding of who he is. Third, we are to be strengthened with all power. God delights in us coming to him to be strengthened with all power. Now, when you first read that, you know, be strengthened with all power. And so whose power? What power? Where's his power come from? Well, Paul tells us, being strengthened with all power, what? According to his glorious might. It is God's power that we are to be strengthened by. And it begs the question, why do we need it? Why do we need God's power? What purpose does it serve? Well, again, follow the, the text. For all endurance and patience with joy. Now, those are three of the most difficult things I think we, we do as Christians. I mean, to endure, to be patient, to be joyful. I mean, that's difficult to do. We need to be strengthened with God's power so we can please God. We need his power because we live in a fallen world. We are fighting against principalities and powers and rulers and against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. We are swimming upstream in a world that, that is flowing against us. We need power to endure, to be patient with joy. 
Because life is hard. And the race is long. You've probably heard this before, but the Christian life is more like a marathon than it is a sprint. And we need to endure. Jesus says, blessed is the one who overcomes, the one who endures. We need endurance to run the race that is set before us. We need God's power. How many of you guys are Marvel fans? Okay, there was a show on Disney um, that completed a few weeks ago, whatever, called um, The Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Anybody see that? Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Okay, a few of you. Um, if, if you're not familiar with the storyline, it, it goes all the way back to Captain America. Captain America was a little scrawny little kid. Before he was Captain America, you know, he, was, he looked kind of pathetic. But they injected him with super serum. And, and because of that, he became Captain America. So he was like 10 times stronger or more than the normal person. He could heal quicker. He was, his reflexes were just off the charts. It was wonderful. Well, in the, the Falcon and the Winter Soldier, there's some more super serum around. And a group of people got injected with it. And all of a sudden, they have some of the same abilities that Captain America had. And so the whole series kind of revolved around it. And, and, and wow, what would happen if this got into the wrong hands? We'd, we'd have an army of super soldiers and everything. You say, you say, well, Paul, why do you bring that up? It's because that's kind of what... I'm still not sure about that. My watch is talking to me. Sorry. Um, but um, as we look at this text... Paul is saying the very same thing, is, is that, guys, you can't live the Christian life in your own strength. You need the power of God flowing through your veins in order to live the Christian life. But unlike the super serum, which, you know, there, they got shot once, and supposedly that was good for, like, the rest of their life. Ours is not a one-time deal. Remember, these are present participles and what it's telling us is that we continually need to be infused with God's power every single day of our lives. It's as if we have to have a transfusion of God's power every day if we are to live in a way that's pleasing to him. One and done doesn't cut it. You come to faith in Christ, that's wonderful. But you have to continue to seek God and be empowered by God to live for God. We need his power to joyfully and patiently endure the trials and testings of life. The last participle that Paul gives us is in verse 12. And that is giving thanks to the Father. Giving thanks. Thanks to the Father. A mature Christian is a thankful Christian. And we have so much to be thankful for, don't we? I mean, if we, if we just stopped long enough and got out a pad of paper and started writing down all the things that, that we can be thankful for, I'm sure it wouldn't take too long before we'd have pages after pages after pages of things to give thanks to God for. Today is a day we set apart 
to recognize dads, to express our appreciation to them and our love to them. And like I mentioned earlier, our kids don't often come to us to thank us for everything that we've done for them. Because frankly, a lot of the things that they think we've done for them, um, we, we did it to cramp their style, you know, to, to, to just make life difficult for them. But there will come a day and they will understand, know that we did it because we love them. We discipline them because we love them. But on those rare occasions where our kids come to us and say, Dad, thank you. Thank you for everything that you've done for me to help me be the person that I am today. When that happens, fellas, we cherish it. Because it doesn't happen a lot. And we don't do it for the pats on the back, but it does feel good. And I think in the same way, our Heavenly Father is pleased with us when we come to Him in thanks and praise, acknowledging Him and all that He has done for us. And my challenge to you would be is, don't wait until Father's Day to do that. Do that every day of your life. Thank Him for who He is and what He has done for you. So how do we walk in a manner worthy of the Lord? How do we please God? We, we do it by bearing fruit, by growing in the knowledge of God, by being strengthened with all power, and by giving thanks to the Father. This is what we are to do. But it is only made possible because of what God has already done for us. And I love just how Paul did this at the beginning of the book, he does it again here in verses 12 through 14. He reminds us that we are in Christ because of what God has done for us. He gives us three things that God has done in the past, which is in contrast to what we are doing in the present and will continue to do. He has done this. He has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. He has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Folks, we didn't qualify ourselves. God has done this. He has made us fit and ready for the kingdom and eligible to receive the inheritance in the saints. He alone has rescued us and saved us from the domain of darkness. And he alone has transported us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the son of whom he loves. And because God has done all of this, we now are able to live in a manner worthy of the Lord. I just love those words. Qualified us, delivered us, and transferred us. So as I close this morning, remember, Paul wrote to refute these false teachings and to encourage the Colossian believers to live in a manner worthy of the Lord. But he prayed for them long before they ever wrote, read this letter. 
Paul had been praying for them before that letter ever made it to a ship to cross the sea, to come to the town across over 100 miles from Ephesus, before they ever had a chance to read Paul's encouragement and correction of false teaching, Paul prayed for them, and he never stopped. And if we are to live lives fully pleasing to God, we too must learn to pray like Paul. We need to learn to pray gospel-centered prayers. Paul's prayer for the Colossians should help us examine our own prayer life, but it should also help elevate our prayer life. I want you to imagine just for a moment what it would do to you, what it would do in your home, and what it would do in this church if we prayed like this, if we prayed for these things. If the spiritual temperature of a church goes up or down, depending on how God's people pray, let's make sure it gets toasty in here. Let's turn up the heat and let's live lives worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for this morning and I thank you for your word and your servant Paul Lord I thank you that your word never comes back null and void but will accomplish the very purpose that you set it out to perform Lord Jesus we ask that you would take the words that we read this morning the words that we have studied that they would become a reality in our life. That, Lord, that we would be ruined for anything less than living a life worthy of you. Lord, we want to be pleasing to you in all that we say and do. So, Lord, make us mindful of this. Help us to seek your will, to grow in the knowledge of you, to have your power at our disposal daily so that we might live for you. And Lord, make us a grateful people, grateful for the sacrifice of your son, the gift of your Holy Spirit, the promise of eternal life, and the inheritance that is awaiting us in heaven. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.